Uh, okay, on three, I want us all to shout, we love you to all of our pod listeners. One, two, three. We love you! All right, you guys, great. Uh, I, I so appreciate these folks. Um, I get testimonies uh, through email and other ways uh, about what's going on there, and it's just such an honor, you know, just to have the word getting out. And um, there, there, there is actually an upside to the internet. I mean, who would have thought? But there is an upside, and I just thank God that we're able to use that and that we're having this, this impact. So thank you, Padrishners, for being a part of, of our congregation. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's good to see all of you who are not Padrishners but are here. And there is a real value to gathering together, like the Bible says, and, and, and worshiping the Lord together and hearing his word together. Uh, the last uh, couple of weeks, I have uh, been just expressing my uh, delight in, in how uh, all of you responded to the uh, disaster in Haiti. And we took up an offering four weeks ago, just spontaneous. Um, and uh, in, this, in this economy, this says a lot, we were able to raise $25,000. I was so proud of, of the church, not in an arrogant way or anything, but just really happy that people are, are making that kind of sacrifice. I found out this week that you know, people have continued to give online and other ways to the Haitian fund. And we now have collected over $45,000 for this. I think that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's fantastic. Amen. Amen. And the value of, of giving to local ministries is that you can know uh, that every penny gets over there. Uh, and there's nothing taken off for administration or anything like that. And so we have two ministries here at Woodland Hills Church that are centered in Haiti. And so we're, we're, we're funneling all the resources through them. I want to just kind of give you a little word about what each of them is doing. That's another value uh, of, of giving through local ministries. Um, one of the ministries is called CoFed. It's run by Nick and Madeline Avion. And they're from Haiti and spend much of the time in Haiti. Uh, Nick is down there right now and and Madeline will be joining him on Tuesday. Their philosophy is to empower communities uh, to, uh, to, to take authority of, uh, for themselves and improve their lot in life. It's kind of the teach people to fish concept rather than keeping them dependent on you. And so they're centered in Lugu. Um, what they've seen in, in response to this disaster is that a lot of people are fleeing Port-au-Prince, as I'm sure a lot of you have heard. Um, and going to villages like Lugu, where Nick and Madeline are situated, or, or Lakai, where the Providence Ministry, our other ministry I'll tell you about here shortly, is located. And so the first need is, is one for food, to feed all these people who are fleeing to these villages. And the first shipment of food has come in, and there'll be others coming in. So part of the resources will be going towards that. And then they'll be looking at rebuilding the lives of, of the, these folks, uh, they're going door to door and meeting with, with, with leaders in the community and asking the question, both in Lugu and surrounding areas, what can we do to partner with you to rebuild? Rather than saying, we know what you need, it, you know, and kind of arrogantly coming in as the rescue team to say, how can we serve you? And so they're in a period of assessment now as to how they'll go forward from that there. But it, it's a great work that's, that's going on there. The other ministry that we run through Providence or through uh, Woodland Hills is Providence Ministry, headed up by Greg and Marcia Erickson. You may have seen uh, Greg Erickson and Jenny Halverson, who is part of this ministry, uh, on the news this last week. They're on a couple of times on Channel Five. Uh, that was kind of reporting what they're doing there. And the main focus of Providence Ministry is to take these six kids who are in total poverty and um, uh, to raise them 
in a Christian home and to uh, you know, just take care of all the needs there and see that they get a Christian education and things like that. And then beyond that, they're, 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 they send as many kids through school as possible. Have one of their students, have they've, they've sent through school who otherwise wouldn't be going to school at all. And one of them now is a, uh, training to be a doctor. And they're, 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 the focus of the ministry then is in Lakai and sending children to school. But in response to this disaster, they're saying, Lord, how would you have us to use this? As an expression of Woodland Hills towards this relief. And um, Marsha, uh, when she was praying one evening, just laying in bed, she got a word. Uh, she said a very, very clear word. And, and the word was, there'll be a family. Listen to their story. She didn't know what that meant. There's a family, and you're to listen to their story. And the next day, she was kind of just networking on the phone with some folks, and it was a real providential sort of thing. Given that the name of the ministry is Providence Ministries, you would expect nothing less. But, but uh, the Lord just really put them in touch with this family. Uh, and they listened to their story and felt a real sense of confirmation that this is kind of the direction that they should go. Providence Ministries always had the philosophy that you should follow God and pour everything you have into whoever God gives you, uh, individuals and groups. Uh, rather than trying to do a little tiny bit for a lot of people, do everything that needs to be done uh, for those that God gives you. And so God has given them this family. There's a, a man... Uh, who, with 29 other people, were living in this, uh, this building. His family was there in the extended family. And this isn't that uncommon in Haiti, to have 30 people living in one house. When the uh, walls came down, uh, this man lost his wife and three children, and four other, or three other children died as well. Here's Greg Erickson uh, with two other folks. He was already in Haiti, and he was the one to make contact with his family first. That's their house. That's their house after the, the uh, earthquake. And at, when this photo was taken, there were still three kids under that rubble. Uh, just tragic. This is two, about two weeks after the earthquake. And next slide. And here's, here's just a little snippet of sort of the tent villages that they've set up all over the place. This is where the, the family was now living. Um, and um, they just find anything you can to shelter you from the elements and, and live in those kind of conditions. And this is the man, uh, the head of the household. And that's his wife. And three kids and um, that he lost in the earthquake. He, he spent several days looking for them uh, just by on his own trying to uh, get uh, them out of the rubble. And hired someone else to help him and finally found them dead. Had to bury them in plastic bags, which um, in Haiti is a big thing. Having a dignified burial is, is extremely important. It just kind of this lays another level of, of, of pain to this whole thing. When you see these mass graves and, and things like this, to, to the Haitian people, it is just so counter what they come to expect. It, it means something deep. that The people aren't giving a proper burial. But here he had to just bury his family in, in plastic bags. And so what Providence Ministries felt led to do is to come around these 23 survivors and, and ask the question, how can we serve you? And, uh, and to walk with them through the long process of rebuilding their lives. And, you know, they, they were a Christian, they are a Christian family, and they were actually using their house as a church. And people were coming, and they were holding services. There was a house church, and it was reaching out to the area, and they still feel called to that area. And so they, they wanted to say, they said, can we keep the family together somehow, and still situated in, in Port-au-Prince. And, um, and so through Providence Ministry, they've now, they're renting a house in this area. All the family is still together. And they're delighted because they have a sink. <laughs> they're just delighted they have a sink. Things that we take for granted. 
but having a sink means that they can, you know, get their own water and, and wash their clothes and, and bathe and, and things of that sort. So that's where these two ministries are. And I'm just, it's such an honor to partner with them as they partner with people in Haiti. Uh, to, to bring God's comfort and love to a people that are just desperately in need. And I encourage you to keep the, these ministries in prayer, keep Haiti in prayer. You can find out more about both COFED and Providence Ministries by going on our website. There's links there. Uh, and, and if God leads you, you can continue to give to these ministries uh, because there's, there's certainly always going to be enough need for, for that. Uh, but it's just a, a privilege to do this. This is the kind of thing that we can only do together. Amen. Can't do this alone. I don't got $45,000 spare change. But when we pool our resources together, well, then God can use us in extraordinary ways. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's get into the book of Luke. Amen. Yes. Good stories there. Stay up with them. Uh, we're up to uh, Luke chapter 22, and I'll be reading verses 23 through 30 here. This is what we do here at Woodland Hills. Nothing fancy. We just sort of study the Bible and say what it says. And I want to entitle this message, Opting Out of the Who's the Greatest Game. Cool graphics there that Trevor, who you saw earlier, uh, did. Everyone's trying to be king of the hill. And if you're opting out, you're the guy in the bottom or the gal in the bottom who's walking away from it saying, I don't want to be part of that game. There's the sermon in a nutshell. God bless you and have a great day. <laughs> okay, I'll add this footnote. Let's read the passage. This is right after Jesus has just said very ominously that somebody, somebody here is going to betray him as he's finishing up the Lord's Supper. And they began to question, the apostles began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. One of the ways that you know that the gospel authors aren't making this sort of thing up is because this is the sort of thing they would leave out if they were making it up. This makes them look like idiots because, frankly, they are. Uh, it, it's crazy. They're arguing right after the Lord's Supper about who's the greatest. So it, it apparently went down something like this. Peter says, well, I think that Andrew is the one who's going to deceive him. And Andrew goes, what are you talking about? Why, I'm, one of the, I'm the greatest here. Andrew says, well, I think it's John who's going to betray him. John goes, what are you talking about? I'm the greatest. And before you know it, a discussion about who's going to betray him turns into a toddler fight over who's the greatest. Jesus said to them, no doubt with a certain exasperation in his voice, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. That means we are the ones who bless. We bless you with our superior power. We bless you with our superior morality and wisdom. We bless you with our superior wealth. Whoever wins gets to do that. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? Obviously, it's the one who's at the table. But look it, I'm among you as one who serves, not as one who gets served at the table. That's how you're to be. Then he goes, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom. Just as, just as my father conferred on me, one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Pray with me here just for a moment. Father, open our ears and hearts and minds and souls to the truth of your word, to receive it. Your ways are not our ways, and how we need help getting in line with your ways, conditioned as we are by this fallen world. 
things seem obviously true to us that are, from your perspective, obviously false. Wake us up to what's going on, how we're conditioned, how we be conformed, how we're being conformed to the pattern of this world, and free us to think and feel and live like Jesus Christ, manifesting your reign and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. 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 Okay, I want to make a preliminary point, um, really kind of a minor point, uh, but get that out of the way, uh, and then, then we'll turn to uh, the meat of the passage. The preliminary point occurs at the end of this passage that we just read. Really, there's several questions here. First, what's up with this saying of Jesus, so that you may drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones, dwell, judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Because it looks, doesn't it, on, on, on the surface, like Jesus is sort of saying something like this. Okay, look at grovel now, you can gloat later. Uh, be humble now, but then, you know, later on, you can really, you'll, you'll be exalted. Uh, p- play the role of a servant now, and then you'll have others serving you later on. The, you know, don't act like the pagans now, but you'll get to act like the pagans later on. Hooray, hooray. Is that what Jesus is doing? I don't think so. Uh, that, that would really be, I think, rather shallow. What I think Jesus is doing here is, is simply this. When you finally learn what leadership is like, well, then you'll be fit to rule. When you learn that leadership in the kingdom is not like the Gentiles think it is, lording over other people, and it's competition for who's the greatest with all these scales. When you opt out of that, well, then when the kingdom comes in fullness, you'll be in a position uh, to be a leader and to rule. Uh, But it'll it'll look very different than the way that the pagans uh, rule. Next question is, what's up with the 12 tribes of Israel in the coming kingdom? What's up with that? It's hard to know, honestly, what exactly to make of it. Some people think that Jesus is talking literally. Now, now here's what's kind of odd is that when Jesus is saying this, 10 of the 12 tribes have virtually disappeared. They've gotten assimilated into Assyria. Uh, And so it's it's a kind of a strange saying. But some people take it literally, and what they believe is that when the kingdom comes, uh, then uh, Israel will be somehow reconstituted, and there'll be be 12 tribes in Israel, uh, and Israel will play some kind of a unique role in the kingdom, when the kingdom fully comes, and the apostles will literally be judging those 12 tribes. But there's others who think that the 12 tribes of Israel is meant metaphorically. 12 throughout the Bible often symbolizes completeness. Uh, the church in the New Testament is called the, the Israel of God. And, and so they take this to mean Jesus is just referring to the people of God, the fullness of the people of God. And the apostles are going to have some kind of role, leadership judging role over all of them. Whatever you think about that issue, I don't care. But what strikes me as important is just to notice that this passage, like almost every other passage that talks about heaven in the Bible, puts it here on earth. And what's coming is a perfected version of this. I mean, some people get this idea, this this really weird, not Christian idea, that heaven is sort of this surrealistic, cloudy place. You're on the clouds with harps, and there's babies shooting bows and arrows. And by the way, happy Valentine's Day. I don't think I said that before. The Cupid kind of figures. And, you know, it's just, it really is out of paganism. This ethereal, it makes it kind of unbelievable. But the Bible presents heaven as a perfected version of this. There'll be a society, and there'll be some d- different roles. I think we're going to have different jobs and different relationships and, and things of that sort. It'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and we, have no, we can't really even conceive of what that will be like. 
There'll be a new nature. The lion will lay down with the lamb. So I don't know how that's going to work, but it's going to be a, 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 a beautiful earth. And why that's important is because of this. From the get-go, God did not call his people to try to escape the earth. He calls his people to bring heaven down to earth. We're not going to get out of earth to go to heaven, but rather we're to live in such a way that we pull heaven down to earth. And as I've said a number of times here, God does not give up on real estate. He loves the earth. He created us to be his viceroys on this earth. And that is still the plan. That is still the plan. And so when the kingdom comes, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, be a perfected version of this, but there's going to be some, there'll be a society and a social structure. I assure you there won't be any government as we know it today. Thank God for that. It'll be a different kind of a thing, but it's going to be a perfected version of what we have here. That's why the Lord's Prayer is so important. At the center of it is this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That was the plan from the beginning, and that's still the plan. And when the kingdom comes in fullness, that will still be in place. Okay, that was the preliminary point. Now let's get into the meat of the thing. This discussion starts by them asking who will betray Jesus and apparently accusing one another, and it quickly evolves into a discussion about who's the greatest. It really is insane if you think about it. Jesus has throughout his ministry been telling them, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. You know, the weak shall be strong. Uh, you know, the kingdom's an upside-down kingdom, giving his own life as an example, talking about how he's going to sacrifice, he's going to suffer, and, and you, you, you're to do the same. I mean, this isn't a new teaching. It's been there for, for three years. Jesus has been hammering on this. And yet here they are, at the very end, fighting over who's the greatest. What makes it even crazier is that they just had the Lord's Supper, where Jesus illustrates to them Hey, guys, get a clue. Okay, this is my body. This is my blood. I'm going to die for you. It's going to be poured out for you. This is what the kingdom looks like. And they haven't even swallowed the juice yet, and they're fighting over who's going to be the greatest. It really is, is, is pretty crazy. And what it reveals is that these, all these disciples had at least a little dose of what we saw Judas had last week. We called it Judas Christianity, where they allow a, an agenda, an agenda or an opinion or a belief to get in the way of their life in Calvary. That blocks them from, keeps them from living a Calvary-like lifestyle. They all had this here. She said, now the agenda is, who's the greatest? Who does Jesus like best? Who's the most spiritual? Who understands Jesus the best? And clearly, none of them do. It's insanity. The only thing that would make it more insane, turn it into a kind of a Monty Python movie or something, is if they broke out in fistfights over it. I mean... That, that would have been something. At the, at, right after the Lord's Supper, they start pounding one another, you know, uh, over who's the greatest. I was in a church service once. I kid you not. I was the pastor of this. Now I was the interim pastor. I'm not taking responsibility for this crew. But a fight broke out in the middle of a church service. Uh, and that was after they had these mutual prophesying, quote-unquote, prophesying at each other. And then uh, mayhem broke loose, and then I saw fistfights breaking out in the gathering area. It's like, okay, hello? What is wrong with this picture? <laughs> this is... And then I invited all the newcomers. Thank you for attending our church. But you've never been to a church like this before. Okay, it's, just, it's crazy. I mean, that, that would actually increase the insanity a little bit. Not much, but a little bit. But what's really crazy is that that level of insanity, not just claiming to be the greatest, but fighting over who's the greatest, that level of insanity has characterized much of church history and yet characterizes the church today where we not only loop Jesus in with fights over who's the greatest, but we actually fight for that. Take a little snippet of church history here. 
From the 16th to the 18th century, it was a period of what they call the religious wars. The 30-year wars, the 80-year war, the 100-year war. Uh, Europe, which was a Christian nation, was divided according to nations because of different ideologies and territorial fights. But all of it was done in Jesus' name. Christian Europe, we had Christians killing other Christians for 200 straight years. Amazing. In fact, we could loop the American Revolution into this because it was one more example during this time period of one Christian nation rising up against another Christian nation, or at least a a bunch of Christians rising up against a Christian nation to become their own Christian nation, quote-unquote. And it just characterizes this whole period. So try to imagine this now. I mean, you've got these Christians would go, and they'd go to church, and they'd worship God, and they'd pray, and they'd take communion, remembering the broken body and blood of Jesus, Then they'd load their gun and get on their horses and ride out into the field and shoot other Christians who just did the same thing, going to church, taking communion, saying their prayers. And they're all riding into the battlefield with a flag in one hand and a cross in the other, dying for God and country, killing for God and country. Just that the God is the same on both sides. It's, it's, It's Jesus Christ. How is that different than if these disciples would have taken out the swords at the end of the Lord's Supper and start lopping off each other's heads on the basis of their disagreements about who is the greatest? There's something profoundly wrong with this. Christians slaughtering other Christians because they're saying it's all part of the who's the greatest game. Our country is greatest. Our king's the greatest. Our governor's the greatest. Our doctrine is the greatest. Our version of Christianity is the greatest. Our warriors are the greatest. And if you disagree with us, well then, out comes the sword, and in Jesus' name, now we're fighting. No different than if the apostles would have done that around the Lord's Supper. And this insanity is still with us to this day. Large segments of Christianity, as I said last week, are rooted in, based on, and looped up with the assumption that God is on our side because our country is the greatest, our politics is the greatest, our agendas are the greatest, our opinions are the greatest. And if you disagree, well then we will use everything we can to fight you and squish you because you have the inferior opinions and whatnot. That's why, folks, a major, central, major aspect of of living in the kingdom today, especially in Western countries, especially in America, a major thrust of it has got to be staying awake to the insanity, remembering that that is insanity because it's been normalized. This is normal Christianity for, for, for large numbers of people. This is what you do as a Christian. To, to wake up to how insane that is, how contrary it is to everything in the kingdom, and to make the decision to quit participating in any version of the who's the greatest game. Nothing has done more to undermine the beauty of the kingdom throughout history than that. To help us stay awake to the diabolical nature of the who's the greatest game, Jesus tells us basically to reverse everything. He say, to a culture where the eldest was always uh, seen as ranking higher than the youngest, he says the youngest is the greater. And in a culture where the people who sit at the table are obviously superior to the ones who serve the table, Jesus says the server is better. In other words, what he's saying here, just giving a few examples of this, he's saying everything you think you know is right in the culture, everything that's normal to you, turn it upside down, reverse it, that's the kingdom. God's ways are the opposite of the ways of the world. The hierarchy, if anything, has got to be reversed. He says, the pagans, they play this game of who's the greatest. 
personally and corporately and nationally, they're always playing that game and killing on the basis of that game. And those who get to rule, the lucky ones, who get the advantage, well, they call themselves the benefactors because now they're going to bless everybody with their superior insight and superior morality and superior power and superior money. Everybody wants to rule the world, but the ones who win, they get to you know, call themselves the benefactor. But then Jesus says, it will not be so among you. Never. Don't go there. My kingdom is the opposite of that. Greatness in the kingdom is defined by smallness, not bigness. And the proof of that is because God is the greatest and he becomes the smallest. When God wants to show forth his greatness, what does he do? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't just overpower people and he doesn't throw lightning bolts. He doesn't flex his cosmic muscle and squish people. When God wants to really show off his greatness of who he really is, he becomes a human being, a humble human being. And he ultimately carries the cross. When God wants to show up for his greatness, he looks like this. This is Christ on the cross, or carrying his cross. This is the greatness of God. Who would have thought? God shows his greatness by carrying the cross, dying on the cross, letting them pound the nails into his hands and feet, praying for the forgiveness of the people who are doing it. When God wants to show forth his greatness and his holiness, he takes on the sin of the world. This is how God shows he's great. And this is the greatness of the kingdom, and it's absolutely the opposite of what the world calls great. This is how we are to live. But folks, it is so hard to maintain that mindset and the commitment to live that way because we are steeped every day, moment by moment, in a culture that not only legitimizes playing the who's the greatest game, but thinks it's the only game in town. We're brainwashed to play this game. To, to live in the kingdom, we've got to constantly, and to stay awake to the, the grotesqueness and the insanity of that game. We have got to constantly be reprogramming our mind and guarding our hearts. How easy it is to get sucked in. A couple weeks ago, I was in the airport, and uh, waiting for my plane and watching the television, and they had this, one of, the, one of these cable shows uh, on, it was, uh, in this case, with Keith, Olber, uh, Keith Olbermann. And he's doing this countdown. Do you know this countdown? Uh, who, you know, the, is the 10 worst people in, in the world or the five worst people in the world or something like that? And he starts with number 10. And I, I'm kind of watching that. And, and it, you know, it, it was kind of funny, actually. I, you know, he, he, he was just kind of pouring venom on these people, but he was doing it in kind of a funny way. And so it was kind of funny. But by the time he got to the, the worst person in the world, and it's the person who did, did, did the worst thing or said the worst thing that week, and by the time he got there and starts casting, I mean, just, just dumping on this person, making them into the devil, I, I found myself, like, actually feeling this animosity towards that person. Oh, yeah. And then I kind of woke up to the fact that I just joined the Keith Olbermann Who's the Greatest Club. I got sucked into his version of Who's the Greatest. And now I'm playing this game of we're the greatest versus them who are the worst. And I just bought into all the hostility and judgments that go with that. I didn't, I didn't plan it that way. That's just how I just found myself doing it. I woke up to that. You get sucked in. And unfortunately, a lot of news stations today are like this. There are some who try to still keep a semblance of objectivity. But a lot of the, uh, the cable stations, there are a lot of them. I mean, th th this is their niche. And so they've got their own versions of who's the greatest game, and, and, and they paint things from this perspective or that perspective. And they do that not in the name of entertainment, whatever, but they do it in the name of news on the left and on the right. And, and uh, 
Uh, it's all full of just interpretation. And what's happening in America is more and more people are going to the station that will tell them the interpretation that they want, which further locks them into that interpretation. So this country is being polarized all over the place. And we're losing the capacity to even talk to one another in decent, calm, respectable ways because we're too busy demonizing one another because we're being programmed by the stations that are doing that. Yeah. Now, you know, here's the thing. I mean, it's, that's the way the world's going to work. That's what the Gentiles do. It's fine, but we're kingdom people called to a higher calling. I don't care what your politics are. I really don't. I say that a lot. I really do mean it. I really mean it. People think, oh yeah, right, but we know what you're... No, no. I, I, I don't care if you like Keith Olbermann or, or think his, his politics are terrible or if you, you know, Bill O'Reilly, you think that that really is the no-spin zone or you think it's maybe nothing but the spin zone. I don't care. Maybe you like, like, like Rachel Maddox, you know, and, and MSNBC, and, or maybe you like, like, like Sarah Palin and, and, and her, her brand. I don't care. But what matters? Glenn Beck, another one, whatever. You can go to the list here. But what matters is that we guard our heart against getting sucked into the who's the greatest game. And, and if, if watching the news stations gets you sucked in there, honestly, it can, it can pollute your heart. They're so busy demonizing other people especially if you agree with them, then you have to really guard your heart that you don't get sucked into that because anything that makes us feel part of the greatest club over against the worst club is compromising the call of the kingdom. Anything that blocks our loving other people and being willing to sacrifice for other people, any people, is, is contrary to the kingdom. Anything that installs judgment or hostility in our hearts has got to go. And if a station is causing you to do that, even though you agree with it, it's got to go. Turn it off. Don't let it be poisoning you. We're called, you know, love, love believes all things and hopes all things. It believes the best. It ascribes the best to everybody. And we're called to live in love. And love looks like that. We're called to guard our heart and quit the game. To surrender to Jesus. To surrender to Jesus means we surrender our right to be greater than anybody. Anybody. Uh, we, we confess that we are the worst of sinners. And uh, to surrender to Jesus means we surrender our right to choose who we love and who we don't love in any moment because we're called to love all and agree with God about every person that they have unsurpassable worth. We're called to love everybody. And that means everybody. And uh, we're called to, to never contrast ourselves with anybody. And that means anybody including those Christians who think that the kingdom is all about doing just that, including not contrasting ourselves, wherever you are, with those Christians who really believe that what the kingdom's all about is God's on our side because we're, we're the greatest in our country, in our military, and in our denomination or whatever, and that's just what Christianity is all about. They think that, but see, it's just another form of Phariseeism if we start going, oh, well, well we don't think that. No, no, you know, it's important to say, here's the kingdom and this isn't the kingdom, right. But never is it appropriate in the in a kingdom person's life to contrast ourselves with anybody. Which leads into my final point. It doesn't actually lead into it. I'm just, it is my final point, and I'm trying to segue somehow or other. Come me a break here. Okay, look, here you this final point. Actually, it does lead to it, I think, in a little way. What does Jesus mean when he says, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me? I confer diatithemi, or my, diatithemi, thami, diatithemi. There you go. Hey, it's late. I've been preaching this for a while here. My brain's going dead, so hang with me here. Cut me some slack on the Greek, too. Okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Diathethemi uh, means... It's <laughs> the last time I'm going to even try to say that word. It means to confer, to transfer rights uh, or privileges to someone. 
to, to bequeath something, to will something to somebody else. And Jesus says, as the Father bequeathed to me a kingdom, I'm bequeathing this to you. I'm transferring this to you. The kingdom is the reign of God. The kingdom is the reign of God. And so Jesus is saying, the Father gave to me the rights and responsibility of manifesting the reign of God, and now I'm transferring that to you, just as he transferred it to me. And the reason Jesus does that here is because he just gave them, we saw last week, the sign of the covenant. Communion is the sign of the covenant, where we remember the covenant. So he gave them the sign, and now he's giving them the substance of the covenant. The substance of the, is the covenant is this. When you enter into this covenant, a kingdom is transferred to you, is conferred upon you, is willed towards you. And the reason that is so profoundly important is because a good percentage of people today, Christians today and non-Christians, think that Christianity is about a belief. Christianity is defined by what you believe. To, believe, to be a Christian means you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and died for your sins. And if you believe that, well, then you're saved and you're Christian. And so Christianity is defined by a belief. I'm sure some people listening right now are thinking, well, yeah, isn't that right? The answer is that that's not right. Uh, look, at it's very, very important that you believe Jesus is the Son of God and died for your sins. Profoundly important. But that is simply the presupposition of the covenant. It's not the covenant. You won't get into the covenant unless you believe that, but believing that doesn't make you part of the covenant. Look, at for me to marry my wife, I needed to believe that she was, you know, that she was nice and sweet and loved me and dropped dead gorgeous. I need to believe that, otherwise I may not have married her. But simply because I believe that doesn't make me married to her. I had to pledge my life, and she pledged her life to me. So also, believing Jesus is the Son of God and died for our sins is very, 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 very important, but it's not the covenant. The covenant happens when we surrender and accept the covenant. And when we do that, something way more than belief happens, a kingdom is conferred on us. Uh, what Christianity is about is this covenant. What the covenant's about is a new reality. We're ushered into a new reality. And the reality is the reign of God. And so it means that we receive the, the power and authority of the kingdom. The reign of God is transferred to us, and we take on the right and the responsibility to manifest that. That's what Christianity is all about. So when we surrender our life to Jesus, really surrender our life to Jesus, a kingdom is conferred on us, which means we have the power and authority to be reconciled to God. And we have the responsibility to be reconciled to God and to put on display what that looks like. When, when we surrender our life to God, we have the, the, the rights and the power and authority to go boldly before the throne of grace, to live as forgiven and freed people. And we have the responsibility to manifest that and the power of the Spirit to manifest that. When we surrender our life to Jesus, genuinely surrender our life to Jesus, not just believe certain things about Jesus, well then a kingdom is conferred on us and the power and authority of God is given to us so we can walk in the joy of God and the peace of God and the outrageous love of God. The rights and responsibilities of that are given to us. So we're called to manifest that. Not just believe in it, but manifest that. When we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, uh, the, the power and authority to love the unlovable is given to us. Uh, to be used to save the unsavable and heal the unhealable. Uh, we're, we're given the authority to tear down walls and to manifest the one new humanity of, of Jesus Christ. We're given power and authority to live in reconciliation and to put on display the one new humanity that Jesus died for and to be freed from the ugly judgments of the culture along ethnic lines or social lines. The power and authority to do that is given to us, but also the responsibility to do that. This is really a reality. It's not about what you believe, it's about the reality that you live in. 
When we surrender our life to Jesus, really surrender our life to Jesus, well, then a kingdom is conferred unto us. And that, with that comes the power and authority to be free from the idols of this culture and free from the bondages of this culture and free from the oppression of this culture and free from the idols of nationalism and materialism and all the other idols that, that afflict people and to put on display the beauty of a life that lives in service to others and looks like Jesus and no longer is playing the who's the greatest game. When we, when we, we surrender our life to Jesus, not just what you believe, but genuinely surrender and start living in the community of God's people, he, frees, he empowers you to come against sickness and disease and come against uh, supernatural oppression, demonic oppression, and, and to begin to walk in the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. We have the power and authority to do that, but also the responsibility to do that. That is what Christianity is about, not about just believing something. We here at Willow Hills Church, we live to do this. Uh, our one goal is to help people in various ways uh, let go of the kingdom of the world and grab hold of the kingdom of God and to begin to receive that power and authority that comes with that and begin to accept the responsibility that comes with that. That's what a covenant is, just like in a marriage. Our, our goal is to see people freed uh, to, to live in the, 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 the beauty of the empowering Holy Spirit who infuses us with Jesus' DNA so we increasingly look like, think like, talk like, love like Jesus Christ. Our, our one goal, our goal isn't to build a big something, have a big event, put on a good show or anything of the sort. Useless, useless stuff, except insofar as people are getting caught up into this new reality, the reality of the kingdom of God. That's what we are, are all about. That's our one passion. And we do it in a lot of different ways. Do it in Haiti, do it in St. Paul, do it in Japan, wherever God will, will, will use us to impact people. That, folks, is what it is all about. In one way or another, seeing God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. And since that's what we're about, I want to end with uh, us saying the Lord's Prayer together and really praying it. Uh, this should characterize all of our prayer and characterize all of our living. We're not waiting to escape the earth and go to heaven. We're to be living to pull heaven down to earth with the promise that there's coming a time when Jesus will return and consummate this whole thing. And then creation will be as creation ought to be. So we pray and we live this way. Can we all stand and close with the Lord's Prayer? And as we do so, I want to encourage our, our, ask our prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and receive prayer for that. Uh, these folks will be up here. would love to pray with you. But uh, together, let's, let, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Amen. Be free of the, be free of the who's the greatest game. Go out in the power of God. Live in the new reality of the kingdom. Take responsibility to be used by God to build it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.